Hello, and welcome to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. My name is Jamie Edwards, and I'm a full-time professional endurance coach, age group triathlete, and triathlon fan. The Diary of an Age Grouper podcast is all about content relevant to age groupers. We'll talk to athletes, coaches, and experts who walk the walk. On this episode of the Diary of an Age Grouper, we talk to Clayton Fattel. A former professional triathlete, Clayton has a deep connection to the sport as an athlete, coach, and human being. He has trained and raced around the world and been exposed to many different training and racing environments, which has helped shape him into the person he is today. Now, five years post-professional career, he is well and truly settled into life as a full-time coach, and a good one at that. We talk coaching philosophies, the art of coaching, swim, bike, run, strength training, and mental health, amongst other things. The passion for coaching and the sport in general is really quite evident. Grab a pen and paper and enjoy. This is the Diary of an Age Grouper. Clayton Fattel, welcome to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. How are you today? Well, thank you, mate. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So for those who don't know who you are or your background in the sport, could you just provide a little bit of a brief history for us? Yeah, so my background is I was a professional triathlete from the age of 17 through to 32. Uh, my my previous life, I was a water polo player and open water swimmer and I had to make the decision which way I, I took my professional career. About grade 10, grade 11, and I uh, obviously committed to triathlon and I took myself over to Europe as soon as I finished school. In fact, I don't even, in, in hindsight, I think I was quite vacant in the final 12 months of grade 12, but uh, I took myself over to Germany and I, I set up camp with the Raylert brothers, which is uh, Michael and Andreas Raylert. And for those of you that know the sport, they'd be two very familiar names to you. They've uh, had Olympic Olympic history, uh, world championship credentials in both Hawaii and 70.3. So I, I call that period my, my apprenticeship, so to speak. It's where I, I learned how to train really hard. And those guys were so so hard and we lived in rostock up in the you know the, the the powerhouse of the east german athletes through the 80s and and i was exposed to some some really tough training and i spent five years there basically just training from 18 through to my early 20s and if if i didn't do that i don't think i would have had a professional career and i probably wouldn't have a professional coaching career either because my sole focus there was to get faster and get better and I went through a lot of ups and downs, downs in terms of managing injuries, managing breakdowns, manage, managing mineral deficiencies. And it was all kind of like, it was almost like a lifetime of triathlon compacted into a five-year period. And whilst I was going through this period, both the boys were in the height of their careers. You know, Andreas was in a break at the Athens Olympics. Michael went on to win two back-to-back world championships. And I was still quite young. So... Moving on from that period with the boys, uh, we have I have a very, very deep relationship with those boys and we're still in touch now. Uh, I took myself into short course racing. I followed the, the ITU Olympic dream, but I just wasn't the runner that the ITU athletes were. So for me to perform in ITU, I had to 
essentially try and Craig Walton my way up the road and have a fast swim bike and, and try and hang on in the run. And unfortunately, the, the dynamic of pack racing or rough, rough legal racing didn't really suit me. Uh, so I was put into a, a bit of a position where I was going to be a workhorse at the Beijing Olympics if we got three slots. And I remember 2007 getting kitted out for an Olympic track suit. And I thought, this is unbelievable. But unfortunately, we didn't get the slot. So that was probably the height of my ITU career, which is getting announced in the Shadow Squad, which which then was the catalyst for me pursuing my career as a long course athlete. And that led me down the road of 10 years of professional long course, which at the time... The height of racing in the US was the non-drafting circuit. It was predominantly Olympic distance. So the transition was was pretty easy for me coming from a, an Olympic distance racing background into a non-drafting style event. And that's where I started to actually make a little bit of money. Like as in terms of little bit, I mean professional triathlete, little bit. So uh, I could afford to eat and I could support myself week to week and I didn't have to come back home and, you know, go and work with my parents as a lifeguard. I could, I was, I was sustainable for that period for the first time in my life. And that, that was in terms of my racing career, that I'd say that was the highlight, which was spending those years based out of Boulder, Colorado, uh, racing, racing similar type of athletes to me that were really quite good at the, the bike. Uh, and then, I mean, the, the guys that are winning those events are still phenomenal athletes across the board, but, that, you know, versus the ITU athlete, just like the sheer size of an ITU athlete versus a non-drafting guy at the time, like we were bigger asset athletes. And uh, that that led me into 70.3 and Ironman racing, which we'll go into at some point. But uh, that was, that's probably, that's probably the short, the shorter version, the shortest version I can give you, which is, which led me to retirement, having a family and here I am coaching now. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that background. So just a question I can't really skip over. Where did that drive from come from when you're 18, you just finished year 12 and you go over to Germany and set up camp with two of the best triathletes in the world and you stay there for five years and you say that's maybe the, the, the best lesson you could have learned in your apprenticeship as you put it. So do you know where that drive came from? Was, was there a plan, a bigger plan, or was it just, Hey, I'm going to give this a go and I'll be there for a year. And you ended up being there for five years can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so i was always fascinated by being a european-based professional athlete in terms of which sport i had two to choose from i had polo and i had triathlon and i was at a point where i had a scholarship in water polo and a scholarship in triathlon at ais and i didn't i was actually going to go down the pathway of being a water polo player but i ended up having uh, retinal detachments so essentially that left me having major eye surgery in both my eyes uh, and I, I essentially couldn't play contact sport or it was it was proposed that I shouldn't play contact sport so it was there was a decision that was made easily for me and I didn't really think much of it at the time but mate, as you know how hard triathlon is it would have been a lot easier wearing a rover around Barcelona playing National League water polo over there than moving to Rostock and getting my ass handed to me by a couple of the best German triathletes the world's ever seen. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Were you ever tempted to go back to water polo or was it off the off the table because um, of the surgery? So my little brother made an Australian under-20 side and he played National League. Uh, and water, water polo 
we like my parents have run a swimming pool, they still run the same pool 30 years on. So we grew up across the road from the pool and we're always kind of water sports athletes. Uh, I loved water polo. I didn't, I didn't see water polo training as training, so to speak. I saw it more of just enjoyment and fun. And I love the team dynamic of water polo. In terms of financially making a career from it, it's it's not too dissimilar to triathlon. It's obviously a niche sport and it's hard to monetize yourself as a team player versus an individual athlete in triathlon. So uh, triathlon in those terms is, is probably a, a better prospect and it was the better prospect for, for me. But in terms of wanting to go back and play water polo, I missed, I missed it every single year. I, I missed water polo. And 20 years on from my last game, I jumped in the pool five weeks ago and I'm now five weeks into I'm really loving it. I love Monday nights. We play water polo and on a Saturday we, we train and it's all just with a group of guys that I actually knew growing up and they're pretty funny. And it's it's funny because the first five years transition out of transitioning out of being a professional athlete, I just this will sound arrogant, but I felt like I just couldn't bring myself to that level of sport. Because my my interpretation of being an athlete was high performance triathlon or just high performance anything. So to get in and play something or perform something for enjoyment didn't sit with me. And now now that I'm here, <laughs> I'm actually really really enjoying it. I still like to win and I'm still ultra competitive. But if I lose, you know, I sit on it for about ten seconds and, and move on. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, aside from the water polo, what, what sort of training are you doing at the moment? How are you sort of staying fit and healthy? Mate, it's a hard one. <laughs> I'm, I train every day of my life. I'm just versatile with, with what I do. So I try to just block out periods in my day where I prioritize doing something. So something, something that actually sat me that Lance Armstrong does to keep himself fit is two a day. So he, I remember him saying he does two things a day. He's 52 years old. He's pulled back his drinking and it doesn't really matter what he does, but it's two sets a day. So he was doing gym and he might go for a, so he's loading packs on and doing these pack walks. So he's still riding his bike. But regardless of, of, of the stimulus, you know, it's just two hours. Or, oh, sorry, it's two sessions a day. And I, I do go off that one to two hour set. So. If, if I can do that, if that's paddling a ski, if that's swimming, if that's playing water polo, if that's going for a run, uh, I don't really mind. But as long as I prioritise doing my exercise, otherwise we all know the repercussions of a retired professional athlete or even an age group athlete doesn't exercise that we're not the best people to be around. Yeah, that's it's a good point. That's a good uh, good message in terms of the lifestyle. How do you reckon you'd go in uh, in a 70.3? today yeah today uh, a little bit too long <laughs> i don't i think i've put on about 15 maybe more kilograms since i retired i always always run myself super thin and and for me to be super thin you know i'm almost six foot two and i used to race at around 75 kilos and and now i'm pushing up over 90 kilos i wouldn't say i'm fat but uh and i'm still exercising every day it's just i have always been a bigger set guy and Water polo was probably, for my physique, would have been a much easier pathway. And we all know how important power to weight is in sport. So I literally had to like almost starve myself to get myself down to race weight. And 
I know like there's going to be professionals out there listening that would be like, maybe you didn't have to starve yourself. Maybe you could have been a little bit more calculated, but I certainly found my sweet spot with my body weight for, for my height. And it all comes back to watts per kilo. And my sweet spot was 75 kilos and 300 watts in an IMED. So it was always based off that four watts per kilo. And if I knew I was, I was aero and I took good lines and I was healthy and I got myself to that weight without running into be pretty strong and I'd get off the bike with a lead. So that's that's something I've moved moved past, thank God. And I can enjoy a wine now with my wife and I, I'll eat dessert if I feel like it. But the funny thing is once all these rest- once I actually let go of all these restraints and I allowed myself to, you know, exercise for fun or to eat what I feel like, I actually didn't really have the same desire as when I had these strict rules in place. So I've definitely landed back at a a more sustainable place in my life, but it's yeah, it's it definitely it definitely took a little bit of time to get there. Mm. So tell us about um, when you started coaching. So where in that sort of journey, that timeline that you described with you know leaving leaving the country when you're 18, and then all the way back to retiring when you were 32, or yeah, stopping racing in the professional ranks at least. Where where did coaching come into the picture? Uh, so I started coaching because because of the nature of mum and dad having the swimming pool. I was I was an assistant swimming coach when I was super young. So I think I was about sixteen. I think it was the first swimming coach was similar to your elders of sixteen and nine months to be credentialed as a swimming coach. And I got my swimming accreditation when I was that age, and I started coaching at a really young age. But I I actually like I was saying with water polo, I really enjoyed it, and I found it it came quite naturally to me. I liked being up in front of people and explaining things and and trying a message to people, and and I probably learned how to coach at a younger age than than what I give credit to, and it's not it's not until I reflect back on my own coaching career, so to speak, uh, which I only really did you know six months ago. Where, where I'm now aware of how early the coaching journey started for me. And I, I did, I, you know, I kind of dipped my finger into it throughout my 20s. And again, that was just to financially support myself as an athlete. I'd come back and just do some swimming coaching at mum and dad's pool. And, you know, I'd make my five or $6,000 and then I'd disappear for upwards of six months again. And that, that, that $6,000, I would, you know, try and draw out over the six months and give you an idea of what, what I used to live off as a pro. Um, there was there was my first year that I came back with, I think I came back with the same amount. So I broke even and I was about 24 and I thought I was Michael Jordan coming back on the floor. I couldn't wait to tell mum and dad that I had $6,000 in my bank account. Um, <laughs> that, was, that, that, was, that was a little bit of a milestone in terms of my professional career. Uh, the, the, coaching, the coaching really took off I'd say later into my 20s, I started working with a few good guys, like literally just a couple of guys that I was training with. And I found I was, without without being an over-the-top training partner, I found that I was suggesting things to these guys that I knew worked for me or didn't work for me. And I was going to almost play more of a mentoring role, even though we were all kind of coached in similar stables or coached in a similar fashion. And, and I realized the reward that I was getting for doing that was almost similar to the reward that I get. I was getting as an athlete, and 
I remember Giles, my coach at the time, Grant Giles, saying, mate, you're going to make a far better coach than athlete. And I've said this before, it was one of the most hurtful things I'd ever been told because I was still fairness. At that point in my career, I was still, I still thought I, I was going to go to the, the Hawaii, the Crown of World Championships and, and win multiple world titles. So to hear that in your late 20s where you're starting to physically peak and be told that maybe there is a, a second pathway was, was hurtful, but it wasn't until sort of 30, 31, 32 when I started to end my career that, and, and I had like normal life stresses away from triathlon, which was managing a family. I, I married my, my, my partner, Kendall, and, you know, we now have three kids together, but we had, we had Nixon, who was our first at the time, and I was still trying to race, but I knew financially this is going to dry out really quickly and this isn't going to be able to support a family. So I naturally went back to triathlon, to, to coaching rather, for probably the wrong reasons. It was more to support my professional racing career. And I got another year or two down that pathway and the training component or the professional athlete part of me was was pretty much dead. And the motivation to get up early and go and train myself every morning wasn't there. The motivation really came to, to coach and I started to grow my stable at sort of 31, 32, which is when most guys are, you know, going to Hawaii and starting the, you know, the five-year journey, six-year journey they spend at Kona. This is going back to my period, not now where the guys are schoolboys and they're young. Um, so the, the decision came at WA in 2019. Remember a few months leading into the Ironman, I just wasn't enjoying my training. And in, in fact, I despised training. I didn't want to do it at all. And I was loving my coaching. I remember being about 100Ks into the bike. I just got dropped by Brownlee and Apo. And I was just like, oh, I want this ride back. I'm over this. And Burks came through. And lucky he did because I jumped, jumped on with Burks and we had a bit of fun. And it was just like a training training day. Burks and I trained together for years. And I got off the bike. I was like, oh, I'll go to a marathon. I've never done a sub three marathon in Ironman. Obviously, I always struggled with the run. So, I, but in my mind, when I got off the bike, I'm like, this is going to be my last triathlon and I need to finish with a sub three and I'm going to do a fast time. So I went and went and ran a sub three at WA and I did an 812, which was my fastest Ironman. And I literally put a bow in it that day, but it also left me a little bit confused to where to and, and, and really transition into a full time coach, which probably took another five years plus. Thanks for that background. So I was going to ask, like, how did you find that transition from pro professional racing through the coaching? But it sounds like you were ready to finish your professional career. And it's funny, you basically made that decision partway through a race and, you know, decided to finish off the ride and then decided to, uh, I'll do this marathon and try to run it pretty quickly, finish with a PB, but then I'm done. So what was the, what was the hardest thing about that transition? Was it was it the because you said you were not really enjoying your your training so much you didn't really have that desire to race and perform but you were loving the coaching so what were some of the practical things over that five years from you sort of making that decision to really being you know fully embedded into uh, professional coaching yeah so the the transition was really quite rocky to the point where I struggled with my mental health um, I stepped I stepped back from racing. And obviously identifying as an athlete and not wanting to identify as anything but an athlete from the age of 10 
I, I knew nothing outside of being a professional sportsman and and the way of life to be an athlete is very distant from how a regular person lives. So I found myself in a position where I had to learn how to be a functional, normal, living human being. And it was tough. It was like I'd been I'd been plucked out and dropped in the deep end of a swimming pool. And mentally, like, I always struggled with anxiety throughout my career. Uh, but it really did flare up. Initially, like, the first sort of two to three years, I wasn't sure of who I was and where I wanted to go because I literally didn't know anything other than training, waking up every morning and training. Like, even my relationship with exercise wasn't that. Like, it was... You know, I see people going for a run. I still think, oh, they're doing some training. Whereas now I'm like, uh, they're probably just going for a run to feel better. They're exercising. So I didn't have that in my body at all. It's like everything you did in your life, for me, revolved around being fitter, being skinnier, being more rested, being more zen, being perfect. Like I just had like such a such a focus on one thing that I couldn't really look beyond that. So I had a few failed attempts at coming back to being a professional athlete uh, to to the point where, you know, I might go on for a month or go on for, you know, a couple of weeks or even one session. And then I'll just find myself dead flat again. And I did that for almost, I did it for about four years. But when I first, I first stepped away from racing, I went and saw a psychologist because I wasn't, I wasn't doing well and I didn't have any direction. And, Remember he said to me, he's like, mate, this transition is going to be an unwinding. It'll take five years. And to hear that was really quite overruled because I wasn't, I wasn't in a clear headspace at the time. And to hear someone say five years and, again, having that athletic background where you want things, you know, readily available, you want things on a plate right now, it was, it was a tough pill to swallow. And in terms of being patient and and seeing life as more of a kind of softer, calmer, sustainable way. It was so far and, again, so distant from what I knew. So I had to kind of accept that, which, did, again, did not come easily at all. It wasn't, it wasn't until I went to Europe this year for my brother's wedding where I was with my wife and, you know, drinking cheap red supermarket wine, which is probably far better than what you get in Australia. Uh, but we're having a wine, I remember, beautiful in Cinque Terre watching the sunset and you know I, I remember just kind of just sitting there thinking we've got our kids at home I've got my wife here I've got you know one I got half of me wants to go this direction but I'm getting pulled in the direction where I don't want to go anymore I need to let go and just let it hit me and surrender to this this thing that I've known for so long and it wasn't until I actually let go that I realized that I realized I didn't I didn't even fall at all. In fact, the shackles came off almost immediately. And it was like I'm gonna enjoy the, the the next week or so over here in Europe. But once I get home, I'm gonna be a full time coach and I'm gonna do it properly. So to to acknowledge what what I really wanted and what my desire actually was was really tough. But the funny thing is, it was there all along. It was just my connection to this other thing was far deeper than what I acknowledged initially. It was it was an identity, not so much connection. So to rip that off and to progress with my life, it was a it was a really, really tough transition and and now it's left me in a position where I'm 
completely interested and fixated by life transitions and I've, I've started I've started reading things on transitions in life and you, we all go through different phases obviously and I'm sure a lot of the listeners probably understand this from their own perspective but that was that was my first major life transition and and change isn't easy for a guy with anxiety I like things to be organized to be routine I like to know exactly why I'm doing things so to to let go was really really hard it took me five four four years four and a half years to to let go but once I kind of put my big boy shoes on and just let go that was when my coaching started to really like really do well and the last sort of five or six months the coaching has taken off and it's purely because no other reason other than I always had the tools and the experience and 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 this I guess like all along this this thing this flame burning to coach and this this desire to help people um my, my oldest brother has had he's got cerebral palsy so I've always watched how he struggled and and kind of navigated life but to his credit performed so so well but being his younger brother it's inbuilt in me to to help people to 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 watch out for people and to be empathetic towards people and coaching is such a great place for me to be it's it's almost like psychology without the depth or the, the complexity of deeper things that I don't really want to investigate. So it's almost as you, as you probably know, Jamie, it's almost like it's like life coaching, but it's also there's so many facets that we have to address as coaches. That's what keeps me so engaged, and that's why I can see a long term future in it because I'm so I'm so interested in it. Every single day, I'm like, what can I, what can I learn about today? It's like, wow, the sports progress. Where are these hotspots? Like I'm looking at the European coaching model, models at the moment, and as a as an oceanic coach, like other than swimming, we're not performing too well. Like our, our female soccer team on the international stage performing really well. We have a few areas that are performing well, but in terms of triathletes, the Europeans are killing us. You look at the top five at world champs from age from age through the pro. There's there's a very very heavy European contingency and what like looking at where where these coaching models are coming from i think we have to be versatile as coaches and make sure we don't get stuck in you know the typical go hard or go home aussie training mentality because it just doesn't float anymore if you want to be a successful triathlete you have to look abroad and it's there's never been an easier easier period to to look abroad and see what these other coaches around the world are doing so i guess the long-winded question <laughs> answer to the question is I'm now at a point in my life where I'm really open to being better. I've definitely transitioned into a similar sort of, it's very, coaching it has its similarities, but it's also the the opposite end of, of being an athlete yourself. You, you almost you have to give yourself to your athletes, but the the focus is similar where I'm looking at, where I was previously looking at the best athletes in the world, I'm now looking at the best coaches in the world. And some of the best coaches in the world are athletes that I actually race. So it's pretty cool. And there's there's definitely a community of coaches out there that I've had history with as, a, uh, as an athlete. Yeah, well, there's a lot in there, obviously. So, again, thanks for sharing. But it's it, I find it very interesting just going back to the crux of it is that you were drawn to coaching from a young age and it was sort of embedded in you. And you spoke to a couple of reasons why that might have been the case. But it was still a hard transition, but it was – less about moving away from being in, uh, like 
being a professional athlete and racing um, and becoming a coach and more about like the, the fact that you were, you're holding on to that identity of being an athlete and, and sort of not knowing how to do that, which is, again, it goes beyond coach versus athlete and it goes you know deeper into who you are as, as an individual. So yeah, very, very interesting. Um, off the back of that, when I've heard you say that before, um, that coaches has often said to you that you would be a better coach than you are athlete. And you initially took that as, as offensive, but, um, you know, you've come to realize that, you know, it wasn't meant that way. It was actually meant to be complimentary. Do you know what they were talking about specifically, or do you have a bit of an idea of what they might've been referring to when they say that, like what, what assets or what, um, what were you portraying during the, the moments that they said that for them to, to say what they said? Yeah, I'd say at the time I had no concept of what, I had a, a slight concept of understanding of what was being said to me, uh, but it was something I didn't want to attach to because I was so deeply entrenched in being that professional sportsman. So but moving on now being a coach, I can see what, what I guess, attributes I have as a coach and what I... Well, I mean, I've, I've definitely developed attributes post-career through probably through my own suffering, to be fair. Uh, and, and all of my coaching, all of my coaching is, you know, I said it to one of my athletes the other day, it's like I won a handful of races over 15 years of professional racing. Let's say I won five races, I lost 500. So all of those tools were shaped as an athlete all through hard, hard lessons. And those few good lessons or those those races that you win, they're almost a blur anyway. You you don't really remember much about it other than something clicked on that particular day. In terms of uh, being a coach, I was always – I'm not – I'd say I'd say yes, I am a little bit alpha. Uh, I don't – I try not to use that word. I try not to use – use it as a word that connects so much with me because I do have a very soft nurturing side and I know that you can be a you can be a, a leader but at the same time alphas aren't all just chess beaters but I, d- I definitely enjoyed helping people and I, I I liked sharing what I what ideas I had but I guess underneath <clears throat> underneath all of that sorry <clears throat> underneath all of that was or forever been intrigued by why, what's the why, why are we doing this session? And it wasn't until I started working with Gilesy that I really started to respect how much thought or how much education actually went into what he was describing us. And this is free power meters. Power meters came in when we we sponsored. It's sponsored by SRM. Uh, it was twenty twelve. So I didn't. We obviously had power meters earlier than that, but Gilesy was so good with, with heart rate. And it wasn't wasn't until later in my career that I realized how clever he was with our heart rates in terms of, you know, like I still use percentage of threshold. So, so even today, you know, I still use the whole uh, percentage of one hour threshold for Ironman being 86 to 92%. Percentage for 70.3 is 92 to 96%. And then that percentage of threshold or an Olympic distance might be something like 96 to 100%. And that's obviously relevant to a professional athlete. You can loosen those percentages to find your own, your own, I was going to say healthy range. <laughs> There's nothing really healthy about the sport. Um, but I, I guess I guess it's just my, 
it's just yeah it goes back to me just wanting to know why we do things wanting to always be better wanting to know how we're gonna how we're gonna win these events uh that i i like to have clarity on on the description that was being dealt out to us by our coaches and and I guess because I was standing up in front of people at a young age as, as a 16-year-old coaching potentially athletes that were, in fact, older than me, that I, I became comfortable with delivering a message at a, at, a, at a very young age because I've I've overseen and I now help people become coaches. And one of the hardest things for people is to, to speak clearly and speak loudly and, and deliver a message that the athlete understands. And this can this this comes from people with far more intelligence than I have, but the obviously the obviously the the required needs as a coach is far beyond just intelligence. The delivery between coach and athlete is the most important pathway in in any coaching relationship. And if the athlete doesn't understand why the coach is prescribing something, then there's a real breakdown in that relationship. So that's something I teach the younger coaches at young ages: learn to speak to your athletes. At a level that the athlete understands, so that go, that can go either way. It can go from delivering a message to a sixteen-year-old that's not really engaged to a forty-five-year-old highly intelligent person that's completely engaged. So you have to you have to learn to to work with different athletes, and that was something I was doing very very young. And I always worked with different types of athletes as well, like there was water polo swimmers, open water swimmers, triathletes, and I was. I was completely fixated and in love with it. And I guess having that versatility in, in different types of sports helped me love the, the, the whole aspect of coaching. Um, and it hasn't, in fact, that, that light is more a light now than ever. And I do, I do coach some athletes outside of triathlon because I genuinely love it. And it's financially, it's, it's, that's, that's not what motivates me to be a coach. And you talked about being really driven as an athlete and, you know, just tunnel vision. Do you have coaching goals? Like how, how you used to have athletic goals or racing goals, whether that's placing or a certain time or that, you know, holding your forwards a kilo on the bike and that's the shape you need to get into. Do you have your own coaching goals and things that you want to achieve as a coach? Or does it come yeah. back to more, you know, like what you said, just helping an individual and just just playing whatever role that that, uh, that requires for any any given athlete yeah i absolutely do have coaching i mean that's that's changed over the years as well through getting back to my own personal struggles that's that's completely changed and it's not to it wasn't until i started to go through my own shit that uh, I, I guess i started to have more empathy towards people of all walks of life and i started to coach and i was more willing to coach people that wanted to finish a triathlon sprint distance triathlon people that wanted to you know learn how to run and run at a sustainable amount you know three or four days a week so that that part of coaching it never never came across as coaching to me that's just more of an exercise program but i realized it was relative to that person and the reward that you get from coaching someone who just wants to implement training or exercise into their life it's the same it's the same relevance as, you know, Reese Lawler wanting to break the Australian record. And and I guess the I, I guess the change in lifestyle is almost 
more profound for for a non-athlete than what it is an athlete to to make those those life-changing shifts and that's something i've enjoyed the last 12 months and something i didn't think i'd ever really explore but uh, in terms of high, high performance, I do have like top a lot of really good top tier age group athletes at the moment, which I'm really really enjoying. Coach uh, the guys and girls, I'm really enjoying coaching because the funny thing is the the you know the the male age group athletes that I'm working with are doing the same sort of numbers as I was doing as a professional, so the numbers all come really quite naturally to me, and and the girls are actually training differently to how the girls were training when I was an athlete, which 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 also fascinates me because again, it's like you know, I need to look at what not just Brett Sutton's doing, it's like, oh, I need to look at what Blues is doing with Chelsea. Like there's there's so many ways of coaching different types of athletes. And I really love that. Um and that's that's the reward system that that gets triggered as an athlete as a as a coach now rather than an athlete. Whereas beforehand, it was just win, 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 be the best, be the best, be the best. And to win and be the best, it's really, really hard. Like for me to win, I had to starve myself. I had to train more than anybody. Uh, every I, I used to put these these boundaries in and around my life that were, you know, not sustainable in the slightest. And I remember Ronnie Shieldnick, a Swiss guy, saying to me once, you shouldn't do anything that you can't sustain for more than two years. And I, I, you know, now I hear that and now I deliver that to my athletes. But when he said that to me as, as an athlete, I'm like, sweet, I'm going to do something that I can only sustain for six months because you're not prepared to do that. So I'm going to beat you. So that, that cutthroat win at all cost, I've definitely loosened, but it's still ingrained in me. And I am very much still performance driven, but I also have a handle, I think, on what normal kind of is in our life, uh, <laughs> something I don't think anyone, any including myself, have a handle on. But the 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 rewards are same. Like if for me, it's like I want to get myself to Hawaii, and then I hear someone say, "I want to be able to run to the break wall and back." It's like I, I can respect someone's dreams or someone's desires, and it's about the the principles are the same. It's like they have a goal. We work backwards from the goal. What does the plan look like? Like it can be quite structured. And I, I wrote a post about this this morning. It's like, what's the what's the greater detail of that desire or that goal? And when you go quite deep below that goal, the goal is just a byproduct of something you want to install in your life. So for me, now exercise is to keep myself healthy, to keep myself in shape, to to be a good dad, to be a good husband, sorry, I should say husband first, to be a good husband, to be a good dad, to be the best coach I can be. And basically, I, I, I guess in terms of where that lands me as a coach is not where I thought I would be. So I'm open to change with that. Uh, but, you know, I always thought, Mate, I'd always thought I'll be a high-performance coach at the Federation, so I'm going to be an Olympic head coach, but that desire isn't there at the moment. Um, it might be, and it might be just for a period of time, but my my desire is just working with, with people that have normal struggles like you and I, and uh, it's almost, it just keeps you grounded. It keeps me grounded, and it keeps things real. Yeah, well, it's perfect for the the diary of an age group podcast. So that's good. I was going to ask you about your philosophy, but I think the the last 
couple of sentences there probably encapsulate that. So I was going to, you've mentioned a few times sort of looking around and what, what do other coaches do? What are other methods? Like what are the Europeans doing? But obviously you've got a bit of a system and a, a formula, if you like, that kind of works for you. So how do you get that mix right of going, hey, those age groupers are doing really well or, you know, what is Dan Plews doing with Chelsea Sedario and how can I apply that to my high-performing female athletes versus going, hey, I've got, you know, I've got some stuff that really works here and um, a, a good way of doing things. Um, how do you get that mix right? How do you how do you juggle and balance that? Yeah, I think it's that's a good question because I'd say the landscape of coaching right now has never been more public than ever. Uh, we've we've got access to you know Strava training picks, athletes and coaches are, are both you know releasing data that we can we can openly see and we can see how these 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 terrific results come about, but if any athlete tries to go and replicate what Abo did to win world champs or what Chelsea did to win a world title, like you're going to fall up short. So that's, that's the art of coaching. And in terms of coaching an age group athlete, it's a completely different sport in itself. And I've spoken about this before, but it comes back to stress, recover, stress, recover, stress, recover. And you look at the stress in a, in an age group's life versus a professional's life. Yes, there is, being a professional, I thought it was the most stressful way to live ever. But now I have three kids, I have a job, I've got a wife, I've got a mortgage. There's stress outside of being an athlete that I never had. And once you actually start managing that stress on top of being the athlete, that's really hard. And that stress, whether it comes from being you know, a high-powered businessman or woman or being, being a dad or being a mum, it's still stress that's going to affect the way that we recover as an athlete ultimately. Or sorry, as a person ultimately, but firstly as the athlete. So say to my athletes all the time, it's like, Jamie, you can't just go and be a, you know, Jamie the sportsman in the morning, go and work an eight to 14-hour shift and then try and sneak a session in the afternoon as the athlete again. That stress load's acquired and you're carrying that stress. And as we know, it compounds, compounds, compounds. So... I try and track athletes' levels of fatigue beyond just the training peaks metrics. Training peaks metrics are really good, and heart rate does give you an indication of of where your fatigue is is landing. You know, it's a little bit it's a little bit vague, so it is good to pair it with something else. Uh, when when I first started coaching, it was Excel spreadsheets and people's interpretation of of fatigue or tired or stress was completely independent up to the athlete. So pairing it with something now. I find highly advantageous and it wasn't something I was open to until I had started having my own stress outside of, outside of being an, a, a just a professional athlete. But I really got a good handle on what managing training and being a normal person was all about. So in terms of, I guess, touching, going back to the philosophy, yeah, like the, the philosophy and how I coach and, having access to other coaches is I read what these coaches do and I listen to podcasts. Podcasts for me is just such an easy method to learn. And again, that was something we didn't have. It would have made a lot of bike rides a lot easier than sitting in the wind thinking about shit a lot easier. But with with that information, it's about kind of reading through it and sifting through it and, and, and you know, taking a few grains of salt from that and then I'll basically implement that into how I prescribe my workloads. So 
you know, like I've always, I'm, I'm, I've obviously gone and I've, I've acquired my coaching certificates and et cetera, but most of my learning comes through my experience uh, and now moving forwards and making sure I don't become a stale coach and I'm not keeping up with the times. I'll basically just grab things from other coaches or other athletes that are along the way and then implement that to each and every individual. Um, some Something I found really different to how I used to prescribe was I used to just go that really heavy volume and obviously that affects so many different areas outside of being, a, being, being an athlete but a person and sleep deprivation with how much time you actually have in your day. But all my guys that have gone sub nine, not one of them I don't have in the gym. So like previously I, I wouldn't even use a gym. But going back 18 months and what we did with Reese, we, uh, we brought the gym in and it worked. And the reason is like we don't, as age groupers, we don't have, you know, 16 to 20 hours a week to sit on a bike and just do do volume. So you have to obviously, you know, you must still do 10 to 14 hours for the lucky ones, but you need to go and stretch your legs in other ways. And, and I always found it interesting that, you can go and ride 200 k's and not get a sore. Not get a sore. You go and do 10 squats and your legs are sore. So that's something I've introduced. Uh, it's something that definitely works. Uh, but it all, it's all everything I'm working on now comes back to triathlon is so much more than just swim, bike, and run. And if you unpack those things beyond the swim, bike, and run, that's when you'll start getting the results that you're looking for. Okay, so acknowledge what's stressful in your life acknowledge what you're not doing outside the swim bike and around like you need to look after your body and start at the ground and work your way up is your body completely functional healthy and working am i resting well is my relationships are my relationships good if you take care of those things the training will take care of itself and the byproduct of that is the results generally flow so i think it's important for coaches to go to those deeper darker places with an athlete and as you know, mate, like it might take a little bit of a longer term relationship for, for athletes to really open up and go there. But I find once that open chain between athlete and coach is, is flowing, the results just bang. There they are. There they are. And it's like, what did we do differently? It's like, well, Reese and I went for breakfast at Shelter a couple of times that month. And we openly spoke about shit that was happening in our lives outside of Swim Bike and Run. And the swim bike and run kind of was just happening and we I listened to my athletes. That's something else I do. I listen to what the athletes are telling me. And most of these guys and girls are pretty clever people and they've done their own research. So it's another source of education for us as coaches is to listen to what your athlete is actually telling you. So having those intimate face-to-face connections with your athletes really are the answer to, I think, that the answers are right there in front of us. It's just... I guess for me as a coach, I want to make sure that I'm not like peak head and it's like I know best because reality is I don't. What I'm what I'm good at is being somewhat open to other ideas and making adjustments and not second guessing those adjustments because I know there's a million ways to skin a cat and there's athletes out there that are proof of that. Yeah, for sure. There's there's so much in that. Um, I think going all the way back to the why and, you know, why are we doing something, but also how that applies to the athlete themselves. And then you, you talked about filtering the information for athletes and a lot of them are very intelligent. They are engaged as well. Uh, the communication is just a massive one. Um, having that 
um, open communications and and building a long term relationship and 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 that goes both ways for both coach and athlete. And yeah, you talked a lot about it. And what I was thinking was just integrating the training into life and managing the overall stresses. So I think um, yeah, yeah, you got to you've got to it's got to be integrated. It can't just be dumped on top of you know work, family, all those other things. It's got to be integrated. And what does that mean? And what does that mean for for each athlete? Um, and their set of circumstances. So, um, yes, yeah, as I said, a lot, a lot in that one. Um, and clearly you, you think very deeply about the sport and the connection and the relationships. And, and that's obviously why you becoming uh, a very, well, already are a very good coach. Um, so off the back of that, what can you maybe boil down maybe, I don't know, top three, top five, or, you know, biggest, biggest mistakes that you see age group triathletes making? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because <laughs> yeah. there's there's a lot of mistakes that get made by both age group pros and coaches. We all make we all make mistakes. Like I said, I made more than anybody because I was willing to go every everywhere and anywhere to to discover how to be the best. Uh, com- common mistakes initially for for me as a coach that I saw in athletes was no no periodization. So I saw a lot of athletes trying to age group athletes in particular trying to target events all throughout the year. Uh, you know, Clayton, I want to be strong from January through to December. I want to qualify for Kona. I want to qualify for 70.3 World Champs. And I might do ITU Worlds as well. Uh, the sport's progressed far beyond that now. And you can't just be like a decent baseline fitness at 90, 85%, 90% year-round and tick those boxes unless you you are a clear outlier. Um, even, if you're, even as an outlier, to go and perform in a world championship, I guarantee you're not going to win those championships anyway. So I, that's something I started to implement with my age group athletes was periodization and targeting particular events. So I always, I mean, it's most people should be doing it. Uh, it's, it's targeting three events in a calendar year and, you know, having that pyramid set up where you'd say January, for example, now, like if you're targeting you know, we're in the Oceana. So if you're targeting 70.3 Aussie champs, which is Geelong this year, right now you'd be starting to do your base. Like I'll, most of my guys are doing Geelong in the end of March. They're ticking over their training. Uh, they're in the gym. They've got the option of riding a mountain bike or a road bike. There is a little bit of flex in the program up until the new year. And then you're going to a different phase. But everything is building towards having having your first peak in, say, Geelong, which is in March. Off the back of that, you know, you might let your form drop back down and then you might peak again for the second time around, say, Pulmonary or Cairns. And if you're, if you're a kind of focused athlete, you'd have a break, kind of being the end of October this year or Nice being a bit later as well, is you, you'd come down off the back of those mid-season races, let your fitness go a little bit, and then you'd start your climb again. And you never, I guess this leads into the next thing, is you, you never replicate a training block which is something I see a lot of uh, age group athletes doing. It's like they'll go and have this this set routine where if you have the – I mean, a set routine's good if you're happy just to be on a mid-pack or even like you can have a routine, you can perform quite well. But if you, if you want to go and perform and you want to find out how good you can be as an athlete, you need to think beyond – just going and, you know, I do my swim on Monday morning then we do a group run on Friday afternoon. And they follow that same routine. It's the same prescription of sessions every single week. Yeah, you're going to have decent shape. 
and probably have good bone density. Like there's probably a lot of like really positive things that you can take away from that. But I see it so so often. It's like, what does your weekly schedule look like when someone starts up with me? And they'll send me through their Monday to Sunday, and it hasn't changed for five years. And they're not athletes disappointed as into why they can't crack getting get to that next level. And it's when you start looking at what their their week looks like in and around that schedule. And a lot of the time, mate, you'll see, you know, a hard session on the same day as a say a shift worker has a twelve hour shift. And then they'll try and do something else that fits in at night. And it's like, well, that routine might work with your triathlon club, but it's not working with you as the athlete. So building a program in and around your lifestyle and not trying to fit that in and around what the club is doing, I think is really important. And I'm not I'm not saying like you have to have a coach to do that, but you you might have to look at, you know, what your what your life looks like. And does that does that session serve you? And getting back to that whole stress stress theory, are you acquiring stress going into these sessions? And are you absorbing the session? Probably not. Um, that's 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 my my second point. And then the the third the third would be not training to your age, which is something that really interests me. So when I first started coaching, I was really good at sort of thirty to forty year olds, and and then I've lately, I, I guess in the, in the shorter term, I've started to get really strong results from sort of 40 through to 60. And I started, the reason being is I started learning a little bit more about the aging body and the requirements and how you can, you know, increase testosterone, growth hormone, recovery off the back of, of say, like running, for example. Um, and, you know, most 40 to 50-year-old guys and girls are working pretty long hours they're in their their earning capacity prime or peak of their life so you know there's there's a lot of stress beyond their training and something that i've brought in is that gym component and spacing between the running is a big one where you know like uh i learned again i learned this from mike mike churn is one of my guys that just went sub nine at wa he's a he's the senior partner i was talking about earlier but what we learned was, and I learned this through dealings with his physio and dealings with Mike directly, is these are two smart guys I have the the opportunity to be working with because that's how coaching is. If you're open to it, it's great people to learn from. And Mike, his physio said, mate, with his age, if you because I do like prescribing pretty long run sessions, like upwards of a marathon with a fairly chunky bit of tempo in it, but obviously you can't do too many of those in a block, but let's say Mike did three or four of those, he's like, if you're going to prescribe that type of workload, there needs to be like pretty heavy absorption or long absorption periods. He shouldn't be touching running shoes for 72 hours off the back of that, off the back of, say, 30, 30 kilometres. We're looking at 48 hours plus. Off the back of even 20Ks, you're looking at you know, 36, 48 hours. Off the back of even a 15 to 20K run for, for an ageing body or someone with a lower bone density, you're looking at still 24 to 36 hours. So I actually reduced the, not so much the load that I was prescribing my, my older guys and girls, but just the spacing. So the frequency I reduced, but the volume, in fact, in some cases went up. So that's that's a big pointer is if you do have, if, if you are, sorry, if you don't, if, if you are getting older, don't try and train how you train when you were younger because it's completely different. And start nurturing your body as it is aging, but do know like there is there is aerobically adaptation 
all the way through till we die, which is something I find very, very intriguing. You can be 80 years old and you go for a walk, you're still going to get an aerobic conditioning adaptation. With the gym, it's more maintenance. Like you do your gym. With the spacing, it's a little bit of damage control. It's making sure you're absorbing it and you're letting the recovery on a musculoskeletal level happen because if we do delve back in and try and run on the top of pretty heavy breakdown, that's when we run into issues with stress fractures, whatever. Um, so be, be mindful of that. Try not to train as a 30-year-old. If you're not 30, train as, train as the age you are. Um, but, yeah, it's I, I guess it's the gist of those three points is you need to build a program specifically for you and your circumstances and the athlete that you are. Yeah, again, so <clears throat> so much detail in there, which is great. But ultimately, it can be summarised by that word specificity, which is often thrown around a lot as, as a bit of a throwaway term, but you can kind of see the detail and, and the thinking that goes behind that. So what I was getting from, um, yeah, probably the first two points is I think a lot of people chase consistency and I always say you've got to be sustainable for it to be consistent, but that doesn't mean you're just doing race build to race build or exactly the same stimulus week in, week out for 14 weeks in a row leading into a race. Um, so it doesn't have to be exactly the same. And an interesting point about, you know, trying to replicate, um, yeah, you don't, you don't need to go race build to race build to be consistent. You need to think mm. about, again, what, what you were saying earlier, like, why are we doing this? Like, what is the goal of this session? And further away from the race, you can do things that are still going to help you be fit and be a well-rounded athlete, but they're not specific to the race itself. So there's specificity yeah. for the individual and then there's specificity in terms of what's, what's the purpose of this session or this block. And then there's specificity for the demands of the race. Um, but it all has to be sustainable um, and appropriate for the individual. And then that final point around, you know, training to your age, again, just adjusting to an individual's set of circumstances, like you used age, but it might be they've got a really big, you know, swim background. So they're cardiovascularly, aerobically very fit, but they mechanically, they break down when they, when they do a lot of running. So how do you adjust that? And, you know, we were talking before we hit record and, um, you know, a lot of people are attracted by being coaches, being coached by ex-professionals. And there's a lot of ex-professional triathletes who are great coaches, yourself included. But there's also, you know, one of the criticisms I've always had is, you know, like they only nest, they, they might only know one way um, and, you know, doing it the way um, that they did it. And then that can translate into athletes and your point around, you know, athletes that have been in the sport for a long period of time or have had a break and not just trying to do what they did last time or last block or, you know, last time they were a triathlete. So, you know, these, these details all, all come together um, and, you know, could be summarized as specificity, but again, what, what is, what is the thinking that goes behind that and, and what is the application for any given athlete and, and their particular set of circumstances? So um, yeah, uh, very good. I don't know if you have anything to add on, on that after my thoughts. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually, I'm actually working in, in not just age, mate. You just touched on it, like you have a swimming background, but and it's or a cycling background. I have a guy I'm working with at the moment. Uh, he's definitely a watch this space. He's got the professional cycling background. His his cardiovascular system is phenomenal. He's he's I told you about his thresholds before we got on the pod, and his numbers are through the roof. And numbers I have never ever seen before uh, in terms of of Ironman racing. And I've worked I'm working with professional athletes, and I've trained with guys. 
uh, that are very, very good professional triathletes, Ironman athletes. And this guy in particular has numbers beyond what I've seen. So uh, in terms of the cardiovascular, it's phenomenal. His bone density isn't there yet. So what you find quite dangerous is, with you know, that sort of background is this guy can go out for a ride and, it, you know, he's done it for years and years. Same, you can go for a swim. He's a good swimmer. He has a little bit of swimming background from when he was younger. But he goes for a run. Cardiovascular system is not stressed at all. But the musculoskeletal system is stressed. And the damage that's being done is it's hidden until something flares up, which happens really, really quickly. And you'll see athletes like that and swimming backgrounds, stress fractures, stress fractures, stress fractures. So I always suggest that as athletes, you have to train or work on three tiers in particular. And those three things complement each other. But without one, you don't have the other. So you have to work on your musculoskeletal system. You have to work on your cardio system. And nutritionally, you need to be sound to source those other two pillars. And if you don't know how to do that correctly, it can be a really, really dangerous way to train. So you have to almost like in this in this circumstance or this scenario we're using, I pull his swimming and his bike riding aside and I train that cardio system and we're working on his race and his training fueling and we fuel the beast that is. With the running, I was like, all right, let's rip the speed out. Let's just go and perform your running. With those principles I spoke about earlier, with the correct spacing in between training, because we're not we're not so much recovering the cardio system in this case at all. We're just getting that musculoskeletal response that we need before we can stress again. So it's keeping that bone stress at an absolute minimal and building that bone like to, to build to build good bone stress, you go and lift things, you take supplements, there's dietary changes. And I have guys in this set of circles, in, in this scenario, working with dietitians again as a coach, I'm going, I'm looking outside of what I know to someone who knows more. And I'm again given the opportunity to learn from how to build bone stress. Or how sorry, how to how to build how to build uh, the the reaction or, or how our bones respond. And the bone density is improved by being patient, but training that area as an individual. Uh, so it's really, really hard for people that have crazy fitness like this guy does, uh, but he's getting there and it's it's completely intriguing. And not just him, this is just one scenario. So you can work with 10 people. They all have their own set of unique circumstances and you know they all have different sporting backgrounds or no sporting backgrounds. And it's our job as coaches to identify what those areas are that we need to work on or, or that we can kind of just implement a little bit more casually to get the best results for those athletes. And that's what I love about coaching. And that's something I really despise of people that go and buy generic programs is that program is a blank canvas and it's a money grab. So don't waste your money. Go and invest in a coach that's invested in you. Spend the extra few dollars and I guarantee you'll end up saving your money in the long run. It only takes one physio one one physio visit to be out of pocket. So try and try and invest in a good coach early. Good advice, especially for the career coaches out there. <laughs> what's, um, what's your phone number mate yeah exactly um so obviously we've gone pretty deep and philosophical so far so let's just break it up with a couple of what i call the cliche questions and some you know hopefully a bit more quick fire so we'll go through swim bike run um 
maybe a top tip and you know a session for people to try maybe for each so yeah. start with the swim um uh, obviously swim. I've, yep. hang on obviously you're a you were a very good swimmer you've grown up around the water water polo um leading out of the water in your races most more often than not but um obviously again bringing it back to to the age groupers and again you're going to have to generalize uh, this is why they're called cliche questions but yeah a, a tip and and a session to try yeah, so a tip for an age group swimmer is if you don't have a swimming background, I'll pay more attention to the frequency of sessions you do per week. So if you're doing two sessions per week, uh, it's not enough. I think your best, let's say you're doing two sessions and you're doing six Ks a week, I'd say you're better off to go and do four sessions per week. You might hit the same volume, but if you're out of the water for more than two days at a time, you're potentially losing feel for the, well, not potentially, you are losing feel for the water. Versus the age group swimmer who does have that swimming background, where you know you might get away with doing a couple of harder, heavier sets per week without having to visit the pool. So maybe if you do swim, I don't know Monday, Wednesday, Friday, maybe include a weekend splash in there, reduce the, the amount of time you spend in the pool, but get there more often. Uh, and a and a good session. I am a four session coach, so without going too deep. The four, the four sessions I will will prescribe. And this goes back to me being an athlete. I used to do 25 to 30 Ks a week. But then I started working with Michael Sage, who's Australian Open Water Swim Coach. He's like, just do four sessions, but make them count. I'm like, what do I do in those four? He goes, one needs to be aerobic capacity. Uh, so, you know, there's so many ways you can do an aerobic capacity set. One will be anaerobic capacity, which is something triathletes won't touch on. So that would be one of my recommendations for a swim set so anaerobic capacity is obviously shorter effort so you might do like you know eight by fifties hold best time on a little bit longer time cycle because i know how much triathletes me included hate to stop and rest uh, to get the most out of each effort so higher intensity anaerobic capacity uh third will be pacing so like whatever race you're training for needs to be specific you need to get your your pacing down pat uh and then number four which is something I introduced with Reese was the endurance swim, which is the equivalent to a long, you know, a long bike ride or a long run. And again, that was his idea that I introduced because I listened to my athletes. So if you're not doing a long mundane endurance swim per week or an anaerobic capacity swim, I suggest you do. Endurance swim can be, you know, four K, you can go and do four one thousands in the open water, you can go to the pool and just literally stretch it out and have long periods where you're just swimming without break because that's obviously what you're doing in racing. It's very, very specific and not many of us do it. Yeah, that's great. And uh, as you're going through, I'm happy to say that I, I do those. So my coach and I have got, got that. So we're ticking those boxes, keeping uh, Clayton you, happy. You, you're doing it now. now <laughs> just <showing it>. um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm starting this week. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with it. <laughs> No, that's good. Uh, yeah, frequency, and then um, yeah, if you can get to the pool four times a week, there that's the hierarchy, or they're the priorities. And then I think yeah, the the session example is good because that is something that not many triathletes do. But also, it's how it fits in, obviously. But um, so that's a swim. Um, same for the bike. Top tip from Clayton Fatel, and a session for for us to all try. Yeah. So. Top tip would be to spend money on a good TT position. Uh, I see a lot of horrible positions where athletes are very, very uncomfortable. And something I've spoken about just recently is the the muscular support 
required for the the ultra superman position versus the skeletal support required for a more conventional not old school but you know a more a more sensible position which is obviously more sustainable and suitable for ironman so don't get carried away with how error you look or how error you might be in a non-pedaling practical position find some comfort find some speed with comfort and work with a professional and keep on visiting that person. If you're happy with your bike fits, keep on going back and working with them and, and you'll get to a point where you can just refine, refine, refine and the position changes. So if you haven't had a bike fit for some time, I suggest you go and get one done regularly. Uh, we used to get done all the time. Like I used to get, I used to get done sort of two or three times a year and, you know, obviously you get new bikes, so you're always tweaking. If you do change things, be, be aware that just changing a changing a saddle, for example, does change the saddle height. Obviously, there's gaps that you miss between one rail and a different seat, and you know a different rail height between the the actual seat bone and the rail. So, be, be mindful of that. Work with a professional. In terms of session type, uh, it still blows my mind that there's not many athletes. Well, there is a lot of athletes still do strength sessions, but you know the the foundation of our training was aerobic and strength, so strength endurance when we were growing up. It was just that typical heavy gear, shallow grade climb where you are going like you know, six to eight minutes of that five to, sorry, 50 to 60 RPM. Everyone knows it. A lot of people I find at the moment are forgetting or choosing to forget about it and avoid it. Uh, again, getting back to the sub eight, the sub nine guys that I'm working with, they do it weekly. So you don't have to go and do six by eight or six by six. There is obviously we do have ways to stress the the, the strength system now with with Zwift that we didn't previously have. But I would I would be making sure that you are working on the again. This is dissecting from like we were saying with your arm. This is dissecting from the cardio system. You're stressing your your legs and you're getting that strength adaptation through your legs a lot more than intensity session on the bike so work on your strength complement it with gym if you have time to do gym uh, because that's the most gains I'm finding at the moment is strength paired with gym is is getting my guys riding very very strong which in turn makes some good runners as well yep good so bike fit and do your strength endurance work do it properly do it regularly they're your they're the bike tips yeah. run Top tip. I'm still trying Session to, to try. run out. <laughs> oh, we'll so, skip over this. Clayton yeah, yeah. to run. Well, the funny thing is, I'll say I'm a better run coach than anything because I spent so long trying to be good at it. So I know I know so many different ways to run. But the run I put back to consistency more so than the other two. So the run the run, if if you can consistently be running for a long period of time without that without that breakdown or injury you're going to be a better runner. So I have, I have a few of my older guys, again, I was talking about, I've reduced their, their frequency back to, say, like four runs per week, and their volume sort of sits around 50 to 60 days. But we're doing it for literally like 11 months of the year, whereas beforehand I was trying to ebb and flow their running a little bit and, and bring them up for the event. I, I'm also used the bike and the swim to really, like I said, push that fitness. But I find consistency with your running is the most important thing. So find, find a safe level where you are consistent. Know that once you have that really solid foundation of, of 
running in your legs, you do have a little bit of room to move. Um, listen to your body because if there is a niggle, you do have to get on top of it quickly because that obviously incurs a really long breakdown. Uh, in terms of training, the, the most beneficial thing that I had as a non-runner and I saw guys like Burks and Reedy getting a lot of a lot of advantage out of who are obviously more pedigree runners than I was, was a lot of back-end running. So really simple stuff where you might go for a 90-minute run and you warm up really, really slowly. You might warm up you know, super slowly. Uh, and the last 30 minutes or even the last 30, 40 minutes, you might do it, say, upper end zone three or Ironman pace. Uh, and the, the adaptation you get from that is big. Like, you know, you go for a long run and, you know, the feeling you get after like 70, 80, 90, 100 minutes, you're really fatigued, you can feel your legs. That's the response you want. That's why we put that period off the back of those sessions to make sure you absorb it. So I would say if you are just doing your long run slowly, maybe look at adding a build component to the back end or, or adding like a longer period of like sustained pace to it. Because if you do have that recovery period off the side, off the back rather, it is, it is a safe option. And mentally, yes, you do need to come up. So you might not do it every single week of the year, but it is something to consider as you build towards your race. Yeah, it's another one where it's that con- it's that specificity of running pre-fatigue. So you've, you've got your 70 to 100 minutes in the legs and then you do some work. Um, and then overall, we're just, again, talking about that consistency, but not doing crazy volume, but doing um, consistent volume consistently. So as you said, 11 months out of out of 12. And there might be different numbers for different people depending on their goals and um, their abilities or their ability to cope with the loading. But that, that's what consistency looks like in real life. Um, now we have to touch on strength because obviously you've talked about it a lot. Often I'm asking, especially the athletes that come on, do you do strength and what does that look like? You're clearly a big proponent of strength training. So yeah. can you give us a bit of an example of, you know, what that looks like again, like what, you know, like the guys that don't have access to access to gym, for example, and then the guys that whether they do or they don't, you know, mm-hmm. are, they, are you going heavy and using that? excuse me that that approach or are you going just sort of doing maintenance work what what does the gym work um look like Uh, yeah for you so i definitely phase phase the cycles of gym uh i i do go heavy towards the the end phase so let's say you know you're doing a traditional 12-week block uh initially you'll start with quite high reps Uh, i don't i i tend to keep gym very very simple the thing that frustrates me about you know, some strength and conditioning coaches or physios or whoever's prescribing is they make the exercises really, really complex. And it's it's really hard to go and actually perform those exercises because you don't have any understanding of what it actually is and how to do it properly. So I definitely prescribe on the on the easier side or the more understandable side. Like I'll start with a couple of like the structure of the session is I'll always go pretty pretty solid compound exercises to start with just to engage the whole body. So I usually start with, you know, like set of like high rep squats or I might do like a seated bench or something where you're engaging both upper and lower parts of your body, but a lot of your body, which is activating so many different groups while still strengthening muscles and tendons throughout your body. Then I'll go to more like a superset functional program where 
you, you know, you might start, obviously, the Super C, you might start adding sessions and things off the back of doing, or you might do like a breakdown set where you are taking yourself to more of a more of a fatigued state. But again, if you're starting 12 to eight, well, eight weeks out from a race, it's more about just that consistency and frequency of getting to the gym two or three days a week. I'll start my guys literally at like 20 to 30 reps. So the weight's sometimes just the bar, or it's literally just doing the action, what I want you to do. The exercises can remain the same for 12 weeks. Yes, it might be a little bit boring, but it's 12 weeks. If you want, if you're serious about getting faster, then you'll be dealing with it. Uh, from eight weeks down to say six, that's where you might, that might be a good point where you've, you've laid four weeks of, of work in the gym. And whilst you might not have that, that, that really deep strength, that, that strength adaption you're looking for, you might, you might find that your your muscular awareness or all of certain things that are improving in your body you previously didn't have. So that's a good time to to make the step up with the weights and reduce the reduce the uh, the amount of reps. So once we get a little bit closer, that's when you're almost going to fail in most of your exercises. But I do use the gym whilst you are going to fail towards the end. There, I do I do advocate that you do use the gym to to build functionality you do use it to build strength and you do use it to build bomb proof body you're not going to the gym to to build cardio fitness so to speak okay so try try to avoid f45 try to avoid crossfit if you are doing you know anywhere from 10 to 20 hours of triathlon training per week because you do not need that cardio stress anymore in your life you've got enough of it it's like break the gym it's like the strength efforts i spoke about it's like separate that part and go and train that part of your body which is beyond just swim bike and run and the reality is you know just riding the hill in the lower gear or running the running the hill and keeping your heart rate sustained there is that strength response that we want pair that with gym and pair that with gym at the right time of the year you find that your your underlying strengths gets really really good and some athletes naturally have a good underlying strength. Some athletes naturally don't, so they have to work on it. But I find that the guys, that, sometimes there's this hidden underlying strength where I'll see the weights that are pushing through, like, wow, that's really strong. But the F, the problem is, you know, he might, might be 100 kilos. She might be heavy, heavy girl. So it's like, I need to actually pull a bit of weight off them. So that's when I might reduce the training speed and just get, get the athletes just to safely pull a little bit of weight off to, to unpeel and unearth the, the beautiful power to weight ratio that I, I'm forever, I'm forever looking for. Yeah, I think the good thing there is the simplicity. Um, definitely seen the same thing. Had a conversation last week with an athlete who was doing strength, so that was a big tick. But uh, I said, "I'll oh, send me what you're currently doing," and it was just page after page of all these different sessions, all these different reps, all these yeah. different exercises, and it was just like, "Oh, that is, that is weight. That doesn't need to be that complex." So very very uh, interesting and that's your that's your background isn't it exercise science yes yeah yeah so like that's something that interests me as 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 a coach and like i'm sure you deal with it is your like your your knowledge or your understanding of, of something is far greater than than others but the way you relay your message to your athlete needs to be understandable so sometimes you have to acknowledge what what an athlete's understanding actually is some and obviously that gap can be really quite quite broad at times. So uh, I think it's cool when someone that is really quite knowledgeable in an area 
explain something to an athlete where the athlete understands and it's actually more effective than trying to flex your muscles as an overly qualified person at, at times. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, just because what was it? Bruce Lee said simplicity, simplicity is the key to brilliance. So, you know, sometimes you can and should be able to be looking for the most simple way to portray a message. And that comes down to different things like you know, how, how you deliver it, but also like going back to your comment around like what's the why here? Like what what's the purpose? What's the intent of doing the strength? Okay, we're agreeing strength is good, but what are we trying to achieve in the context of this individual? And, you know, for the most part with the guys we work with, it's how do you get faster as a, as a, as a triathlete? So it can and should be simple where possible. Um, and I think that's where um, a lot of the really good coaches, like the best coaches in the world, they, they find a way to make it simple. Yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't have to be. I mean, it can be complex, but the delivery or communication. Exactly. Yep. Um, so what about what about testing or test sessions? Like, do you do benchmarks testing? And at what time of the year do you do that? Which tests do you use? And then as a flow-on from that question, do you do test sessions? So, or race simulations or key bricks or time trials or anything like that? Can you just speak to that for a little bit? Yeah, so definitely, I, I am I am quite wary of like a test session where like you might go and do an FTP every eight weeks. I don't, definitely don't do that. Uh, we I went through you know New South Wales Institute of Sport and then onto the AIS where we were tested all the time, and I actually found myself in a position where I was putting almost more emphasis on actually I was I was putting more emphasis on my test results just to make sure that I could retain my my scholarship. So our, our scholarships weren't even performance-based. They were basically running us off how good your numbers were. So I guess I guess with that background, with that experience, I knew how much I hated the testing component of it. I am I am aware, I am wary of how often I do prescribe a test, so to speak. And I think I think the most important thing is is you don't just get good at doing the test. You gotta remember why you're training. That's to be good in the field and that's to be good on race day. And I think racing is the ultimate test. In terms of drawing back to testing and training, yes, I do deliberately stress my athletes. So what we're trying to achieve, I actually think an FTP test is probably the, in terms of short, well, not short course, but in terms of like an aerobic capacity sport, I don't really see all that much relevance in it. Like being good at 20 minutes and then, you know, okay, you're good for 20 minutes. Let's go 95% of that out. That that number. That's your 100%. Like that's really, really. So that's that's your one hour threshold. That's really, really great. And I don't necessarily agree with that. If you're good at 20 minutes, doesn't mean that you're going to be good over four hours in the bike. So with with the testing, I just use more race specific stuff to see where an athlete's at. When I do see these numbers, I FTP. Uh, it's exciting because you get an insight into what someone's underlying strength or what someone's VO2 or their capacities might be, and you have to work with that individual. But I usually save that for the startup. They don't have any sort of good testing in place where there is that initial set of their training zones. Uh, I do find that you can set training zones more accurately of doing a data scheme of, say, like 45 to 90 days instead of just doing the one-day, one-off test because everyone gets a little bit of white collar fever where there is a test and you underperform. 
and and that's hard. And obviously, you do have to cut to get the test to get an accurate test. You have to taper like you would a race, and I find that breaks down the consistency in your training. So initially, yes, I think testing's important if there isn't that that history or if you don't have a good good set capacity in terms of your ranges set and say training peaks or whatever platform you're using and then retesting it i i usually do it through a it's more of a hidden time where my athletes won't know they are getting tested so you can't give that away because then all your athletes will know when they're being tested so you can't actually tell us what the sessions are is that right well i i know where my athletes are at sort of six four two weeks out from a from a race from the key event uh, i think by implementing a test if that's if that's going to be detrimental to their performance, which I do, I just don't prescribe it. So to answer your question, yes, <laughs> fair enough. And what about um, those sort of race simulation key brick sessions? Is is that something that features heavily? Is it all the way through a block? Do you do one or two big days like that? How do you how do you roll with that? Yeah, so something I'm aware of is like an athlete's mental freshness or sharpness or or motivation, and ensuring that 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 arousal curve is on the up once we do get to race day. So I see I see some really, really long drawn out Ironman blocks. And one year I did I used to always do like a 10 to 12 week training block for an Ironman. My best actually came off nine weeks because I guess I guess now I look back at what my baseline was it was really good. So keeping keeping athletes sharp is something I'm aware of and something I find to break down an athlete's motivation is the duration of runoffs in terms of how long you're running off for and how many weeks before an event do you actually need to run off the bike. I see a lot of athletes running off the bike all the time and I know as an athlete if I saw that in my program, I would despise it and I would try and do anything in, the, in my power not to do it. So running off the bike, brick sets, Yes, I do use them as a gauge, and obviously I do use them tactically at the right time. But say if this is, I guess, a little bit, little bit broad, but if we if we went back sort of ten weeks, I wouldn't be running my athletes off much at all, if 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 at all. Once we get to say like nine, eight, eight, nine, even seven weeks out, yes, that's when an athlete may may start running off sort of once a week, but not that long. I still put more emphasis on the the bike, and once we do get closer. The only real, I guess, test that I do use would sort of be around like three weeks out and something I used with my guys before Western Australia last year was a longer runoff. So we'd go like you know, 120 k's on the bike, 80 of that would be Ironman pace and then sort of like 18 to 20 k's at Ironman pace. And I see that as a session that's close enough to racing and far enough out from racing that it's not going to, it's not going to blunt your motivation to race hard. I think you see it so often where athletes spend all their cookies, both physically and ment- mentally, in training just to get through the training block and then come race day. They don't really have that desire to go very, very deep. I want my athletes turning up on race day ready to go to war. Like they're prepared to hurt and they're fresh enough to hurt and they're on the up on that curve and they're not on the way back down. So, so be careful of how long you drag things out for and be aware of what kills your motivation. Be strategic, you know, like runoffs, runoffs to get the stimulus can, can be five or six Ks. If you've done a 180 kilometer bike, you don't have to go and run off the bike 20 to 32 Ks. I'd say the prescription I give to my athletes in, in terms of other coaches for running off the bike 
is far, far less than this. Yeah, I think you you have two different schools of thought here. There's guys that actually live and breathe by doing the brick sessions, and then you've got the other the, the other side of the coin, which I think is where you sit, which is you use it very, very sparingly. Um, depending on my state of motivation, sometimes having a brick run, like you're really motivated by it, it's really specific. You know, you know, want to have the same feelings you have on race day, and you get confidence from that. And other times, I get back from a ride and, and just think, oh, it's one one good way to ruin a good bike ride is to have to go and run off the bike. So, again, it's getting that mix right. But th- that's sort of exactly what you said in regards to the mental state of the athlete and and um, you know that emotional response. So for you, you'd be like, oh, I've got supposed to run off the bike here. Like, how can I avoid that? Um, yeah. And obviously, that's not a that's. Uh, Sometimes persevering and pushing through is a good thing and, and other times it's not. It's going to do more harm than good. Yeah. I just I just don't think there's any real purpose in running off the bike slowly either. Like mm. if you're using it as specific stimulus, you're best to do it off at pace uh, and less logistically you are challenged, which a lot of our athletes are. Like a lot of athletes yeah, unconsciously do brick, do go uh, – they, they, sorry, they do go and break their sessions up because they do need to get a couple of sessions done in the morning because they don't have the opportunity to train at night. But if if you did have it, I guess on those weekends, you know, if you are going to run off the bike, there's no real reason to go and get off the bike and go and run slowly. You're better off going and eating and recovering and then running again in the afternoon, I think. Um, because, yeah, r- running off the bike for a long time it takes it takes a fair bit if you've done a very very hard bike session and something i see a lot of coaches do is they end up putting more emphasis on the run session off the bike which detracts from the importance of the bike session and i find the more emphasis you put on being a good swimmer and biker complements how all you run so you have to remember you are training for three sports and you shouldn't compromise another activity to be good at the run and i see that where the bike is heavily compromised Mm, good point. Um, so just want to maybe this is supposed to be our little rapid fire, but um, it's being padded out, which is fine. It's all it's all good info. Um, but maybe in terms of coaching high performers, you've talked, a, you know, you've given a couple of examples, Reese Lawler, Tom Cherney, but you've re- referenced just, you know, quite a few sub nine athletes, for example. We might save Reese Lawler. We might try and get him on and, and do it all, all three of us together and talk about that preparation and what into that went into that but as a summary for this sort of coaching high performance age groupers can you identify or have you identified sort of the common traits um for those guys and girls and again can you boil that down into two or three key things yeah that's uh that's an interesting one because yeah that that, there is differences but there is a lot of similarities and the guys that are winning age group are incredibly driven and what what I do see is they're not just performers on the field, but away, you know, they're in their life they're they're usually financially quite stable and they they hold down pretty high powered positions in terms of their careers. So they are you know intelligent, overachieving personalities. So I guess the way that without categorizing too much with how I coach my performers is they are in- incredibly driven, but the coaching style usually is more of a pulling back than a motivational coach. It's the motivation's there. It's just I need to make sure that the motivation's there when it matters. And there's only in 12 weeks, there's only one day that really does matter. So it's it's being completely open, transparent, 
calculated in terms of what the athletes see. So like these guys that are winning, they want to know exactly why they're doing a session. And a lot of them come from the school of time is money. They don't want to be wasting their time doing a session that's not going to propel them into being a winner. So the session needs to be done with purpose and they need to know why. And I'm okay with that because I like I like it. I like explaining why you why you do particular things at particular times. Uh, the the guys themselves, I guess on race day that they're, they're just animals. And I spoke to Dan McDonald, the guy that I coach, who's a pro now. Uh, he's just I took him to becoming a pro this year, and he just raced at New Zealand. And the the difference between say like a great athlete and a good athlete is the great athletes identify moments in events or moments in races when they have to stand up and be special. And I said to Dan the other day, I'm like, mate, if you didn't, if you didn't make that jump out of the water and, and make that latch onto the back of that group, which I will add was power that I've never seen before come through his data in almost two years of coaching, you know, you're completely out of the race. So it's having the capacity to to identify those moments and then execute and jump on it and make that decision during the race because I find that triathletes in particular can be far too calculated and they have to stick to this game plan that's going to get them from point A to point B as fast as possible. But what Dan learned the other day was numbers are almost just they kind of used there as autopilot. We don't really like you don't really use them that much. It's just identifying the moments and jumping on those moments and seizing that that split second it's like you know you saw like nathan cleary the last 20 minutes of the nrl grand final like they were nowhere and then he won the game in 20 minutes so it's that's that's something people have in them they either either have that that killer instinct or they don't and it's really hard to to find it in somebody that doesn't have it if they don't have it it's also okay but it's it's a lot easier to to make a winner out of a killer yeah, I think you summed it up in the first first line is coaching those types of guys. We're pulling them back as coaches. We're yeah. not we're not saying, hey, you need to get out and train. And oh, you know, you're supposed to be doing a three four hour ride. You only did two hours. Like, what's going on? It's, hey, man, like, watch that heart rate or hey, you know, bring that overall volume back. And you know, are you sleeping enough? Are you eating enough? All of those sorts of things. You you know, you're pulling pulling back those athlete types and that personality type because they're high achievers and often that does crossover into other areas of life so yeah. um well that concludes our sort of our quick fire change of direction um one last thing i want to talk about which is probably the opportunity to get a little bit more philosophical is i'd like to talk about the coaches that you've had throughout your career uh, what you learned from them and how that then influences the way you coach so sort of going you know back around to underlying philosophies i suppose just to wrap up the conversation so um i don't know whether you want to list like every coach you've had um, or triathlon coach you've had maybe, or yeah. whether you want to just pick out a few that you really um, were, were really heavily influenced by. Obviously you've mentioned Grant Giles um, of Aramax, who is based in Australia near you. And there's a lot of Australia's best athletes has have come from his stable. Um, we've had uh, Jack Kelly host of the triathlon hour, and he sort of tried his hand at being a pro at one stage and he couldn't speak highly enough of Gilesy. Tim Reed has been on and talked about Gilesy. And, and you, you yourself have, have mentioned him a couple of times as well. So maybe he's the obvious place to start. Um, and then if there's any other coaches that kind of stand out or even your training partners 
and things that you learned along the way. Um, and yeah. that will that will wrap us up. Big question, yeah, I know. Yeah, it is. But uh, yeah, Giles is a great place to start because Giles was the most influential coach I ever had. Uh, he will still remain one of the most influential people in my life. Uh, and getting back to what I was talking about earlier with Beyond the Swim, Bike and Run, Jalzy was the first person I called when I was in New Orleans having a panic attack. It was my first first time experiencing anxiety. And I, I guess, no, I did, I, I was having it, but I was having it in private. And I had that type of relationship with Jalzy that I felt comfortable enough to tell him and open up to him. And our relationship moves so much deeper than just a triathlon athlete coaching relation, coaching athlete relationship. Once that we started connecting on that deeper level, that was when the results started to come. I didn't really have all that much success until I opened up about my own struggles with him. And then Giles shared his own struggles with me. That I, I quickly learned that Giles was a coach that had, and a person that has no ego whatsoever. And if you look back at that period, all that purple patch that we had with Aeromax. I think we had one year where we didn't lose a single race in Australia with Aeromax athletes. Like it wouldn't have worked with any other coach because Joel Jalzy had no ego whatsoever. He didn't play favourites. Uh, he loved and supported all of us beyond just athletes, and that that was something where, as a person and as an athlete, you felt supported. And that, to me, was obviously far outweighed his 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 great knowledge of as a coach. But he's he's someone that did go and perform well as an athlete. But like like you said it earlier, mate, great athletes don't necessarily make great coaches. I think good athletes or athletes that almost made it make great coaches. And I guess I relate to Jalzy in that. And, you know, like Jalzy finished top five at Ironman Australia at a time that there was only eight Ironmans around the world. So he was very, very good. He didn't have that huge underlying strength that I spoke about. He didn't have that talent. Like he wasn't oozing talent. But guys like that figure out ways to get to the front of these races by being clever and, and being curious and learning from the, the guys or learn from anyway basically just anything is educational to them and Jalzy is a sponge and I definitely learned to sponge information from different people from how Jalzy was and Jalzy kept all of us like Peter Robinson three-time world champion Brad Carterfield this is our squad like 60 60 like dual Olympian Commonwealth Games gold medalist under 23 world champion Reedy world champion Burks won a million Ironmans uh, myself, Joey Lampy, Mitchy Robbins, like the list was phenomenal. Like our training group was phenomenal. And the fact that there was never a blow up at training is, is unbelievable. Like you get a, you get a group of athletes like that to train together for two years and not have a blow up. I'd say it'd be very, very rare. Uh, and the reason was Jalzy, Jalzy bought this element of deepness and this love and calmness into our lives that we were young, we were all young chess beaters and we all wanted to be the best. And I think if you had a had a coach that was trying to coach and the, the coach made it about the coach or made Jalzy made it about himself, then it just wouldn't work. And that's something that I've taken from him is 
it's not about me anymore. It was for so long. It's it's about the athlete, and you you can stand in the shadows, and you should stand in the shadows. And I use Wayne Bennett because Wayne Bennett's someone I've looked up to as a coach, and and he he gets the best out of these people. In fact, like you see Wayne Bennett working with so many athletes that come from really really hard backgrounds and upbringings. He gets the most out of these people, and it's not what he does on the footy field. It's not what he does at training. It's what's done outside of that, which is what gets the results. So you're far more than a coach. And Jolsey taught me that. Whereas my interaction with all the other coaches throughout my life was about, you know, the swim, bike, the run, the gym, the numbers, the lactic testing, which is great. And it's stuff that I've learned and stuff that I use now as a coach. But until you're willing to look at somebody like I do now and look at an athlete beyond their athletic ability, I look at them as a person. I treat them as a person. That's when you really get the most out of a out of an athlete and as a human being. And that, to me, is what is more important. And that's when you get the response from the athlete because I spoke about it in a podcast the other night where they were comparing Lawler's time to the to the record that just fell. And I'm still angry and defensive towards it, even though Alex Berenswear did a great time at WA. I like I'm in a position where I'm like, no. Nah. Reese is my athlete. I'll do anything to make sure that it's fair and square. And that's just the way I am. And Giles was similar where he would do anything for us to win. But with that said, without contradicting myself, he also taught us that there's far more than just winning. And that's probably the most valuable takeaway because none of us cared about anything but winning. And Jolsey didn't give a shit. That's the funny thing. He did not give a shit about winning at all. And, yeah, to, to say that to a group of athletes that were just, like, winning on a world stage that you have to win, that wasn't implemented into us at all. So it's getting back to what I said earlier. It's a byproduct. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, again, big. I thought it might go a bit more philosophical, but I didn't expect it to go that deep. But, again, it's it's something that I've heard from, like, the other you know, other couple of guys I mentioned who have been on this podcast and referencing Gilesy and that group and that environment. And I think that speaks a lot. Like, is there any other coaches that you want to talk about? I think it would be hard for anybody to follow follow that and just that glowing sort of recommendation. Um, yeah. But any, any, anything else that sort of stands out along the way? Yeah, I mean, I did I did work with some really good coaches along the way. Um, Gilesy was I spent the bulk of my career with Gilesy. I had some exposure to some very good swimming coaches. Like I worked with Dennis Cottrell. Uh, I worked with Craig Walton. Uh, Dennis, you know what? Like Den- Dennis, kind of he, he was he was hard. Like you had to earn his respect and. That's the swimming culture. Like, that was the swimming culture in Australia. And at the time it worked. I don't know if it flies as well anymore, uh, but I think there is a component of that that's important because at the end of the day, if you're trying to train athletes to be hard, you have to expose them to some pretty hard lessons sometimes. And there is a lot of athletes out there that haven't really experienced hardship. Um, I mean, yes, most most have, but there is... There is, there is some out there with a pretty lucky upbringing that, 
you know, they have all the ability in the world, but it means nothing. Like, I don't know how many times you hear about, you know, like the athlete from, from you know, Jindabyne that trained in the 25-metre pool that used to do 100Ks a week that didn't have any money, had to ride his bike to training. He's the one that, or she's the one that wins the Olympic Games. They're the ones that have that hardship. And it's, I think sometimes coaches, coaches force their athletes into these hard learning lessons. And if you can persevere with that coach through those lessons where you think they're just an absolute asshole, you realize that they've taught you something. And Dennis was like that. And being exposed to someone like that, that was just so passionate. Like, again, he didn't talk about winning. He just spoke like, he just prescribed the session and you beat a session and the passion that oozed out of the guy for swimming and swimming properly was beyond anything I'd ever been exposed to in the swimming pool. And that's why you get the most out of your, your athletes because every single afternoon, all he did or every day rather, twice a day, three times a day was he just showed up and brought that passion all the time. And I think that's all we can do as coaches is every time you get on a phone call with an athlete or every time you get to engage face to face with an athlete, is to bring yourself fully and to engage with that athlete. And you don't have to make it about winning. In fact, you should try and make it not about winning. And you'll find that that's, that's what empowers the athlete. So Dennis, Dennis definitely, uh, I did have some other sort of federation coaches, but uh, I, I guess Michael, Michael Raylert, who was a training partner slash coach, I learned heaps from those guys. They were hard. And looking back at, their career they probably needed a coach in their own corner to be honest they were still I thought they were old sort of mature wise heads but you know I was 18 so they were probably only mid to late 20s I was still young guys and I remember going out for a session one time and it was a five-hour ride but it was always fast it was you know 180 k's or whatever and it was a competition who could not drink any water and (laughs) That like that shit happened all the time, and it was yeah. like you know we'd go and do the swim set in the morning, it'd be five or six k's, and shake hands with the coaches. The coaches just sit up there and eat croissants and wave to you. Like, I don't give a shit. And then you go for we go for a ride. And it's like the boys would make a challenge. Like oh, we're not eating today, or all right, we're gonna we're gonna go out and turn around and do this fucked up bit of spit of road <laughs> just because it's hard and it's gonna make us better. And then you wouldn't drink, and they would get off and go running in the forest. And it, you know, there'd be a 3k loop. And I remember one day in particular running this forest, and Michael and Andreas were side by side. And you know, you hear about these Goggins stories, but like this was like <laughs> real life Goggins stuff where no one knew about it. It was like we must have been 30 kilometers into an hour or one hour run, you know, 30ks into an easy 12k. And the reason was because neither one of the boys would say, all right, it's time to go home now. So I literally just sat there like a good boy and just went round and round and round and round. And then another 3K, another 3K, another 3K. And finally I just said, what are we doing? And they said, oh, are you finished? And I, I said, I thought we are doing an hour. And they're like, okay, we can go now. <laughs> we ran home. We did fucking 40-something kilometre run. Uh, and I don't know if they'll test in me, if they'll test in each other, but mate, it was like, it's just hard, hard training. And like, I look back on it and it feels stupid, but I guess, I guess it made me a good athlete. It taught me how to suffer. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, that that's as you said, it's a, a real a real life Goggins thing, a real life sort of epic session. It was just two German brothers who trained together. They loved to train hard, ended up being very good at what they did and you were under their wing, so you just went went along with it. But it is, it's those little things over time that that shape you. You've got the Gilesy example where it's you know, really, really big, really deep, really a growing and evolving relationship over many, many years. And then you've got those little things like that, like those one one or two sessions here and there that just stand out. So yes. Anyway, Clayton, we better we better wrap up because um I could probably just keep asking questions and just listening to the stories and the advice and um all the details and information that you provide. You clearly love talking about it too. So the the two together are not a good mix. I have no idea how long we've actually been talking because we talked for a bit, fair bit before we hit record. But yeah, better call it now. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you um, for going so deep and sharing so much about all different parts of coaching and, and your individual journey and how that all comes together. Um, and yeah, dare I say it, maybe we'll, we'll do another one down the track and maybe get some of the athletes on as well. I think that would be a pretty cool insight. But for now, thanks again. And uh, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future guests, please contact us via the Diary of an Age Grouper Instagram page. Alternatively, you can email info at jetcoaching.com.au. Don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. This podcast was born to discuss all things age group triathlon. As an athlete, coach, and fan of the sport, I've always been intrigued with different approaches to training and how to optimize an individual's performance. We will speak to athletes who perform at a high level, as well as those with an interesting story. We will speak to coaches with a vast array of experience and also experts in various fields. We want to sift through what the physiology labs tell us, as well as what we see the pros doing, and take the lessons that apply to us. This is the Diary of an Age Grouper.